jointly by CPGB. Online Communist Forum organised jointly by CPGB and Labour Party Marxist in the middle of Labour Party conference. So Jack Conrad will give the report. Okay, well, I, I'm not going to um, dwell on um, Labour Party conference. I'm sure other commoners will chip in with this or, or, or that. Um, from what I can gather, uh, looking at uh, the news, nothing has sort of um, happened that comes as a, a particular surprise. We've got a bit of kerfuffle, haven't we, about uh, the word scum, sorry why I go to sleep. Um, but in general, uh, things have gone as expected. Um, I mean, we did have uh, the question of um, how the next leader um, is going to be elected and um, no surprise there. We all knew or had a strong suspicion uh, that that wouldn't pass and therefore uh, would Starmer um, actually, you know, willingly go down to a defeat. Actually, I got cold feet myself um, slightly over that one. We were editing the um, article in the Weekly Worker and it had um, uh, the phrase, probably Starmer will retreat. And I changed that to maybe, <laughs> just sort of, uh, mm. Maybe because he wants to be seen to be strong, he might do, I'm going to keep fighting. But it, it's hardly an issue uh, to die on, is it? And, and the fact of the matter is he got elected according to that system. And as I understand it anyway, they're putting in extra safeguards. Um, and of course, I know that the uh, threshold was changed under uh, Corbyn. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, Corbyn got on in the first place by a fluke. It was the morons which did it, not the strength um, of the left. So there will be some changes. Uh, but at the moment, it's clear that Starmer is safe um, as leader until uh, the next uh, general election. And then, depending on what the result is, either he's prime minister or something, damn well near it, or he's out. Um, hence, you know, the um, Angela Rayner, Andy Burnham, and one can carry on down the list of, you know, David Lammy, all fancy uh, their chances. Not this time, not a, not a leadership challenge uh, to Keir Starmer, uh, but a leadership challenge if uh, Keir Starmer leads the Labour Party uh, into another bad, uh, defeat who knows when the next general election will be 2023 spring autumn who knows a um, couple of other things um, in terms of that defeat of the left um, well that that victory of the left I mean I, I think it's just worthwhile commenting on uh, that one of the early editions of uh, Labour Party Marxist not the first but one of the early ones, uh, um, we came out, of course, against the Collins Review. This was the one person, one vote election system introduced by uh, Miliband. Um, this was something that was being um, motivated by the right that the left opposed because it uh, would empower uh, the Sun, the Daily Mirror, and it would empower um, from our point of view, 
not the ordinary uh, member, but precisely with this innovation of uh, supporter status, it would empower the bourgeoisie. Well, that was our calculation. Now, I think that's in general a correct, a correct calculation. But also, of course, what it was designed to do is water down uh, the influence uh, of the trade unions. And in order to get a Labour uh, government elected, they were prepared to go along with it. Now you see a complete reversal um, of positions. The left is defending the changes that it opposed. Was it 2014? Um, and now it's the right that it's proposing uh, to go back to an electoral um, a college system. And of course, it was the trade union leaders that basically turned Starmer down on this one, um, hence the result. But OK, um, when it came to the vote on David Evans, the new general secretary, again, that didn't surprise me. 40-60 uh, 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 to the uh, leadership, that was what was predicted um, at uh, the beginning. We have other questions, of course, um, to do with reselection of MPs. Note that no, no one uh, was uh, deselected uh, last time round. Uh, nonetheless, we have proposed changes there. And of course, we have a new disciplinary uh, procedure after the, um, what do they call it, Equalities and Human Rights uh, Commission so-called report into so-called anti-Semitism uh, in the Labour Party, that that has to be outsourced. Um, okay, so this is stuff that uh, comrades who are there uh, can, as I say, chip in uh, a comment um, um, on. All I would say is that the idea uh, that the purge has been taking place and continues uh, to take place because of the strength of the left, I think is belied uh, by uh, the conference down in Brighton. Um, uh, as I as I speak. OK, but what I did do is uh, waste um, half an hour, an hour of my life, which I deeply resent reading Keir Starmer's, uh, what's it called? The Road Ahead, the Fabian uh, pamphlet. Um, I have to say that this is, um, how should you put it, um, programmed by focus uh, group. That's how it, that's how it all reads uh, to me. Uh, this isn't someone sitting down there and mapping out uh, uh, the road uh, to the future. Uh, this is someone guided uh, by advisors um, who think uh, that they have the pulse of the public. Um, but in reality, what it's about is making the Labour Party acceptable. Uh, to bourgeois um, um, opinion. So we get the usual stuff about Keir Starmer's uh, parents, um, his background, um, big theme um, on obviously COVID-19, how the country came together. Um, it, it's bland, 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 bland. And you even sort of get the idea that the quote from Joe Strummer is put in there, uh, not because of uh, Keir Starmer's musical taste, which I, I don't know, but because of some sort of focus group. Uh, this will appeal to X uh, demograph demographic. Clearly it's not, not the young. 
Um, we get the usual stuff about the Attlee uh, government. Of course, this is standard um, with any, um, you know, Labour, um, you know, mainstream declaration of, uh, of faith. Uh, what's marginally interesting for someone who's called Keir um, is the insistence that Labour has got to actually look forward instead of looking back at a, a sepia-tinted past. It's essential to look forward. He sort of tilts uh, a nod in the direction of Harold Wilson um, and his uh, white heat of the technological revolution. I'm not quite sure when that phrase was coined. I think that was um, early 60s, uh, very closely associated with a whiz kid, young uh, Tony Ben or Wedgwood um, Ben, as he was called at the time, or Anthony Wedgwood uh, Ben, who went on to become Minister of Technology. But that's the sort of thing that Keir Starmer is saying. But when he presents his, his vision of the, the future, it really amounts to, um, um, well, basically uh, nothing. There's workers' rights, but I think the giveaway phrase is, you know, business is a force for good. Um, interestingly, I suppose he attacks the Tories and the SNP, tries to bracket them, them together as being nationalists. Um, and of course, what the Labour Party is, is not nationalist because nationalist at the present time in British politics is bad, uh, but, but um, patriotism um, is, is good. So the Labour Party is patriotic, uh, the Tories are nationalistic, uh, the SNP um, are nationalistic. Um, two points, two more points, I suppose, is that um, Marxism gets one mention, uh, and that's a negative. Uh, the 1945 Labour government was less inspired by Marxist literature or phrases along those lines, or, or pamphlets, or textbooks, or some phrase along those lines, more by um, uh, the needs of um, ordinary people. Um, so Marxism gets one uh, mention, no mention uh, for socialism. The working class gets a, a, a mention. And as far as I know, capitalism uh, doesn't get any uh, mention. So there's no trace. I was, I was when this was first advertised, this is the sort of intellectual version uh, of the um, Keir Starmer speech. I was expecting it at least to be peppered uh, with, um, you know, various academics and various thinkers in the in the past, um, you know, in terms of um, the Labour Party's uh, past, but none of that. Uh, basically, this is at the level of uh, quoting a few statisticians and um, uh, government uh, uh, figures. Um, so there's no trace whatsoever of Keir Starmer's uh, Pabloite uh, past, his uh, past as someone who you would have thought had more than a passing knowledge of, uh, of Marxism. Um, nothing, not a hint uh, about anything, um, anything along those lines. So my basic comment is here um, that this is a, a work of absolute intellectual uh, poverty, that if this is the intellectual justification for Keir Starmer's speech, it has no uh, intellectual uh, justification. 
in that sense, Keir Starmer reminds me of um, John Major, who was very much led by speechwriters, advisors, and didn't have anything himself uh, that smacked of originality or personality uh, for that uh, uh, matter. Okay, so what I want to do now is instead of um, trying to deal with um, every other topic under the sun, including HGV drivers, petrol shortages, uh, and all the rest of it, what I wanted to do is comment on two things, and they're, they're sort of quite closely related. Um, first of all, there's the new book out, Peril, uh, by Bob Woodward, uh, you know, of... Um, Watergate fame and Robert Costa. And uh, basically what this purportedly describes is um, a Trump's quote unquote uh, Reichstag uh, moment. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of the most moronic comment um, on uh, January the 6th to me um, came from Counterfar who were unanimously agreed uh, that this didn't amount to an attempted coup. Of course, it wasn't a coup because it failed. Um, but uh, it wasn't a, um, an attempted coup. It was much more like the, um, the beer house um, putsch, the Munich beer house, beer house putsch, uh, which, as, as I say, is um, quite a staggering um, a phrase, given that the word putsch, uh, as I understand it, is basically, well, it is, it's the German equivalent to the French word coup. Uh, it comes from Swiss German, um, but it is the German word for coup. So it's a bit like saying it wasn't a coup, um, it was a coup. It wasn't an attempted coup, it was an, an attempted coup, uh, just crazy stuff. But what's interesting about the recent uh, material, and I, I think we'll see more um, um, of it, is the sort of vague plan uh, that existed um, in Trump's head and in the, in the heads of his uh, uh, close advisors. And basically, you know, as you would expect, um, the plan um, wasn't, um, how should you put it, um, uh, <laughs> uh, carried out or wasn't, wasn't a clockwork plan. It wasn't a, a neatly worked out plan, but it basically went along the lines of, of this, uh, that as the commander in chief, and that's what uh, uh, Trump was, he could basically get Mike Pence, the vice president, but more important than that, uh, the guy that's presiding over Congress as it counts the, um, uh, the electors um, through, you know, the um, electors of uh, America's uh, indirect presidential um, um, system. Um, and that what he would do is uh, the vice president uh, would basically refuse to recognize the votes of uh, various states uh, that went the wrong way. Um, they would claim that this is, uh, that, uh, this, um, is constitutional and that uh, constitutional amendments uh, that make it clear that it is unconstitutional to do that were themselves unconstitutional. Now, given that uh, um, Pence didn't uh, indicate, as far as we know, that he would go along with that, uh, indeed, he indicated quite the opposite, you then see the role 
um, of the mob and the Proud Boys and the Boogaloos and um, the Three Percenters, uh, that these people were designed to intimidate uh, Pence. This is the crucial guy. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? What a large swathe still uh, of the Republican Party goes along with Trump's narrative uh, that the election was stolen. So my own take on it uh, was and remains, and I think this is what the evidence uh, shows, is that this was a failed um, a coup attempt uh, by Trump um, on January uh, the 6th. And also what's interesting, of course, uh, is uh, the more recent re re revelation or confirmation, should we put it like that, uh, that the military uh, were not going to go along uh, with this and in, in effect uh, were plotting against their commander uh, in chief. And if you look at the role of uh, General uh, Miley, um, you know, he, he was using the term, you are not going to let the fascists through. Am I making myself clear and getting an explicit agreement uh, from um, basically uh, the um, high command um, on, on that one? So what we had, yes, is a constitutional crisis. The president was attempting a self-coup. Uh, and if he'd got uh, Pence to go along with that, then I would have expected, this is what I wrote uh, just after the events, uh, to see the CIA um, basically frog marching Trump. And it would also have been uh, Pence if he'd gone along with it out of the White House or wherever they happened to be and uh, either into a lunatic asylum and declared them to be insane. Either way, that there would have been uh, a counter coup uh, against Trump. So the point there um, isn't so much about um, rehearsing the past. There will be investigations in, into that, both um, uh, by the American authorities and no doubt by the courts and also by historians. The main point from our, from our angle is to really show the extreme instability uh, that existed uh, in the United States uh, at the time. And I think looking at uh, uh, the Biden presidency thus far, uh, it's clear uh, that that instability, the cause of that instability, the social base of that instability hasn't been drained. Uh, it still exists and you could easily imagine it uh, growing. So. Uh, I'm not saying it's worth anything, but it, it is just worthwhile flagging uh, that uh, recent opinion polls in the United States amazingly show that Trump is more popular uh, with your average American. I'm not saying that makes him over 50 percent, but he's more popular uh, than Biden. Um, a long way to go. An awful lot can happen. Nonetheless, that should tell us something um, um, about uh, the United States. Um, in other words, I'm um, insisting that uh, January the 6th, to describe it as a non-coup uh, or just a demonstration uh, that um, got a bit out of hand, um, um, I think shows um, a blindness uh, to the realities um, of the day um, uh, and the nature um, of uh, the Trump presidency and the willingness um, of the army high command to disobey uh, the orders uh, of uh, their uh, commander uh, in chief.
okay just uh, a few uh, now um maybe it might appear to be disconnected um, news items but i'll try to draw the threads together we have the release of um ming wanzu um princess of huawei um, we also have two canadians released in uh, beijing we always had a suspicion didn't we that these guys were there as a bargaining uh, chip um, we also have again separate but nonetheless related to that the former us uh, uh, former chinese ambassador uh, to the un um, talking in a china arms control and disarmament association meeting um, in other words it's a sort of semi-official um, um, hash but it's statement uh, about China abandoning um, its uh, don't use nuclear weapons first uh, policy. Um, this is in light of the um, um, Australia, UK, US alliance and the building of nuclear powered um, uh, submarines uh, for Australia. But it's also in light of the Quad uh, the alliance between Japan, South Korea, Australia, the United States and India um, against uh, China. And basically what this guy is saying um, is that um, they would be willing uh, to use nuclear weapons uh, first. Um, whether that becomes official policy, uh, that's a very different question. But it shows you uh, that in spite of this uh, release of uh, Princess Huawei, um, tensions are increasing. And in spite of uh, Biden ringing Z and saying we've got to ratchet things down and Biden saying we don't want to participate in another Cold War, the fact that uh, the, the United States and uh, Britain will be building nuclear technology uh, for Australia uh, and is constructing a, um, a powerful uh, military alliance against China um, indicates um, um, otherwise. Again, in um, a separate, but uh, I think related uh, development, worthwhile looking at uh, the BBC, which is running some sort of series, news series um, on China uh, with this introduction, Xi Jinping's effort to return to socialism, quote, unquote, um, this is about um, the um, common prosperity uh, line that Z um, is promoting. I'm not suggesting for one moment, by the way, uh, that China has been socialist in any sense of being proletarian socialism or on the road to uh, communism. Um, nonetheless, uh, clearly something is uh, going on. Uh, this is in the context, particularly, um, as I said, of this uh, common prosperity uh, line, but it's also in the context of uh, maybe um, the Chinese state buying out or um, taking over or whatever they're going to do uh, with um, Evergrande, the, I think it's the second largest uh, real estate uh, operator in China. You all know the story. Uh, it's basically um, 
bankrupt. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's not getting uh, the money coming in and therefore is in crisis. But it's also in the context of uh, the clampdown um, on um, Chinese internet companies and Chinese internet tycoons. And also the banning, which is quite an interesting move, isn't it, of cryptocurrency uh, in China. I personally think cryptocurrencies are mad, um, a huge waste uh, of energy and a bubble uh, that uh, will burst at any moment. Uh, <laughs> I say that, that doesn't mean it can't continue to rise and rise and rise, but my God, when it falls, I would expect it to fall and lose loads of people, loads of money. Either way, uh, again, on the same theme, we have a guy called Yuan uh, Renengo. Um, he's being given a life uh, sentence. Um, and he was head, was head of um, a company. I'm going to do my best with my Chinese. Coincho uh, Munteo. That's the name of the company. Anyway. Uh, this was uh, a company was worth, um, in dollar terms, 506 billion, um, which makes it bigger than Coca-Cola. Uh, and apparently this is the uh, producer of a whole number of different ranges of, I think, grain-based uh, alcoholic drinks, but they may, maybe they produced uh, lots of other things as well. Uh, but amongst them was, um, I'm not a, an imbiber of Chinese alcohol, but amongst them was uh, Bijia, again, the best of my Chinese pushes it to, which apparently was uh, Mao, Mao Zedong's uh, favorite uh, firewater. Well, he's been given a life sentence for bribery. And we're also told that the discipline uh, department of the Chinese Communist Party, the Communist Party of China, has investigated 2 million of what they call the tigers and the flies. Uh, obviously, the Tigers, that's reasonably uh, clear. That's the big guys uh, involved in corruption inside the Communist Party. Uh, the flies uh, are what we would call uh, the minnows, the little ones um, who are also uh, guilty. But two million uh, investigations. Obviously, that's a tiny number, uh, given that the Communist Party of China numbers over 90 million members. But as I've um, reported on this forum, uh, before that that investigation also includes those at the very top um, of the pyramid in China uh, and their wives and their sons and their daughters and their nephews uh, and their nieces. Um, now, whether this is, uh, you know, to do with political maneuvering or something else, we'll leave that one uh, aside uh, for the moment. Now I'm going to try to um, bring those threads uh, together, and, uh, but uh, in order to do so, I'm going to uh, again take it from a, a different um, angle. And this is um, using an article in uh, the US uh, journal called Foreign Policy. Uh, this is a right-wing uh, uh, journal. Um, I expect that you would call it... Um, um, neoconservative. I'm not quite sure um, of its uh, politics. Anyway, there's um, an interesting, I actually think, um, 
um, uh, a worthwhile um, article by uh, two um, um, academics that also um, intersect with um, the state um, in the United States. Um, and their names are Hal Brands and Michael um, Beckley. Um, and the article, which you can look up, just Google it, is Danger Zone. Um, no, it's the, it's, uh, the, that's the name of their book. So if you look up Danger Zone, the coming conflict uh, with China. So there's an article in Foreign Policy that's basically putting forward uh, their thesis. And what's interesting, as far as I'm concerned, and although I'm not totally uh, convinced about this thesis, um, I do find it a strong um, argument. And I'll tell you why in a little while, I'm not totally convinced by it. But basically their thesis is that China is at its peak. Um, uh, I've always argued against the idea that all you need to do is put um, uh, a straight line into the future against uh, China's 14% uh, growth rate in GDP and project that uh, into the future. And somehow uh, that provides you the answer uh, to what the 21st century uh, will look like. In my view, it's as foolish um, as projecting horseshit um, in um, 1890s London um, and its growth into the future. If you did that, however fast you removed it uh, by today, um, our Trafalgar Square, I think would be something like 11,000 foot under horseshit. Um, so it's clearly an absurdity uh, uh, to do such a thing. And I think it is an absurdity um, if, if we're capable of learning from the past. Um, and an example of that clearly in terms of the left is looking at the Soviet Union. Trotsky back in the 30s thought the Soviet Union represented the future. He had all sorts of criticisms of the first five year plan, but look at the growth, look at the rate of growth. Clearly the Soviet Union represented a, a superior, a higher uh, form of social organization uh, that was destined to catch up uh, with the capitalist West uh, and uh, in time uh, leave it uh, behind. And of course that was taken um, as a basic assumption uh, by, by Nikita Khrushchev in um, the, um, I think it was the third program um, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was produced, I think in 1961, which was called the Road to Communism, which confidently predicted that by 1970, the Soviet Union would catch up uh, with the United States, which has been his, the historic aim um, of the Soviet Union since the uh, launch of the first five-year plan. But by 1980, um, it would not only have caught up uh, with the United States, it would clearly be leaving it behind, and the Soviet Union uh, would be taking real material steps in the direction um, of uh, communism. So the working week would be radically reduced and an increasing range of products uh, would be supplied simply um, on the basis of, uh, of need. Uh, well, we all know actually uh, what happened. Uh, the Soviet Union in the, in the 1970s was visibly slowing down. In the 1980s, it was visibly stagnating and visibly declining. 
Uh, and what we saw um, is those at the head of the system basically despairing of the system and triggering uh, its uh, collapse. Anyway, the argument of these two is that the Soviet, uh, that China has reached its peak and that what we should expect is it to stagnate or actually um, uh, decline. And their thesis is based on, how should I put it, a reversed reading. The bit about the coming conflict is based on a reverse reading of Euclides and his uh, famous uh, Peloponnesian uh, wars. Uh, this is the famous uh, account of uh, the war, the wars uh, between Athens um, on the one side and Sparta on the other. Athens was the rising power, uh, Sparta was the established power. That's how it was portrayed. Um, Sparta uh, was, you know, basically in, in Greek terms, ancient Greek terms, had a, an unbeatable um, army, uh, but uh, Athens had an unbeatable uh, uh, navy. Um, but with this navy, it was threatening uh, to become the hegemonic power uh, in uh, Greece and um, hence the conditions um, uh, for war. So modern um, academics in terms of international policy talk about um, the Euclidean, um, um, how should you put it, uh, a moment uh, when rising powers uh, are driven uh, to prematurely uh, challenge the established power. Um, if you know your Greek history, um, the Athenians eventually uh, come to grief. Uh, they are soundly defeated um, in a, um, uh, a military um, engagement in um, Sicily, the, the siege of uh, Syracuse. Um, they come away humiliated and um, Sparta and its allies uh, inflict defeats um, on Athens, which um, end uh, with the um, protective walls between the city of Athens and the port of Piraeus uh, being demolished and Athens being reduced to a second rate uh, uh, power uh, after a terrible um, famine and uh, breakout of disease and uh, all the rest of it. Anyway, these guys basically reverse that uh, and they say it's not when um, you have a rising power uh, that things become warlike and uh, unstable. It's when the challenging power um, actually peaks um, um, as against uh, the established uh, hegemonic power. And their argument, in terms of backing up their argument, uh, they look at um, late 19th century USA and say, well, this is when the United States ended its period of very rapid economic growth following the second revolution, the civil war. Um, more tellingly, uh, they then use the argument of czarist Russia, but also Germany. Um, and the argument there is that Germany um, was a rising power after the unification of Germany, uh, but Britain responded. And Britain responded by first of all, aligning itself with its old enemy, France, and then France aligning itself with Russia, 
and Britain aligning itself um, as part of a triple uh, alliance. And if you take um, um, Prussia's um, allies, uh, that closest ally, uh, that was uh, Austria-Hungary, and that was in the process of uh, disintegration. And I don't want to go into the ins and outs of it, but basically uh, this is Britain's attempt to stop the rise of Germany. Well, you know the results of uh, 1914. Uh, it ends in um, defeat um, and a, um, a victor's uh, peace. Um, Germany is stripped of its colonies. Germany is reduced territorially. Uh, its army um, is massively reduced. It's not allowed to um, possess submarines, uh, big battleships, um, all sorts of restrictions uh, were imposed um, upon it. They also use the argument of Japan uh, and Japan, um, you know, launching the attack on Pearl Harbor, that if you take Japan after the Meiji Restoration in 1868, it saw rapid economic growth. Um, What's interesting in terms of their thesis, sort of backing it up, is that you, you can quote large, large uh, array of different sources from inside Germany uh, before 1914 and inside Japan, that basically that the generals knew that the odds were massively stacked against them. And yet they basically went ahead with war um, anyway. Maybe they didn't have a choice. Um, either way, uh, this is the argument that the um, the worrying moment, the, the moment of uh, conflict comes uh, when the uh, challenging power um, starts to lose steam and is forced um, by the hegemonic power because it's surrounding it or it's putting sanctions on it, is, is blocking its rise uh, to resort uh, to um, other um, methods. Okay, anyway, the long and the short of it is uh, that that's the argument that they present uh, with China. Um, and in my view, um, we need to understand the success of China. And it has been absolutely remarkable, not um, in the normal way of trying to look inside China. Of course, that is an important factor, but it isn't the brilliance of the leadership of the Communist Party of China, in my opinion, uh, that's resulted in this historically unprecedented period of um, economic uh, growth and the shift of economic power so that today uh, China is the world's largest um, exporter, um, is the second largest um, economic power um, um, on uh, the planet. The key, in my view, to understand that is a combination of the internal regime but plus the Americans um, believing that they could incorporate China um, under their hegemony as some sort of neo-colony. And the first agreement there, of course, was the meeting uh, between Kissinger and Nixon and Sharing uh, Lai and uh, Mao Zedong uh, in uh, Beijing, where basically what you saw with China is a willingness to go along with the US foreign policy. Um, so China um, amazingly, um, you know, lines up with General Pinochet uh, when it came to his coup against the government of Allende uh, in uh, Chile, 
other such examples can be quoted, you know, uh, Mozambique, Angola, um, you know, um, but there are many uh, examples of, 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 of that. Um, but the key, the key to it is, is the early part of the um, 21st century when China was allowed, and the word allowed uh, needs to be stressed, allowed to join the, the World Trade um, Organization. And uh, this was, as I said, in the belief that uh, China was inevitably going towards uh, what could be called liberal capitalism, would allow its banks, its big companies to be bought up uh, by outsiders, crucially American um, outsiders. Uh, and um, entry into the World Trade Organization gave um, China uh, access uh, to markets and, and basically China uh, boomed. Uh, but as I say, the agreement was that China was going to open up its economy uh, to the outside. And that is something China reneged on. And instead of China being a neo-colony, uh, what we actually have is China as a competitor uh, a state uh, to the uh, United States. OK, so the argument then runs uh, that uh, one of the advantages um, of China um, is already coming to an end, and that's um, excess or surplus population, you know, massive population, but a massive population in the countryside that could be absorbed um, into industry, a young uh, population. Uh, well, what China uh, faces over the next 30 years is the loss of 200 million economically active adults. Um, and I personally think that the relaxation of the one-child policy, uh, its replacement by a two-child policy, its replacement by a three-child policy will make no difference here uh, whatsoever. Uh, that each society has its own population laws and uh, capitalist society and the proletarian family also have its own um, population laws. I think we should expect actually um, one child uh, to be the norm, not even two. So we're not even talking about a biological replacement, which would require, what is it, 2.1, 2.2 children uh, to um, simply carry on with the same population. So China uh, has an aging uh, population, a stagnant uh, population, and therefore, unless it lets the um, old gits like me starve, um, then what it's talking about is devoting more uh, of its GDP uh, to social security. You've got to look after uh, the old unless you allow them um, um, to die. I'm not saying they won't do that, but I don't see that as a popular policy um, if they allowed it, not least given Chinese culture, uh, which, um, to use a phrase, basically is centred on ancestor uh, worship. Um, you know, it matters uh, what happens to your parents. It matters who your grandparents were, who your ancestors uh, were. That's very deep um, in Chinese uh, culture. OK, so also the argument of these guys giving away their politics is that the anti-corruption drive 
um, is a reverse of economic liberalization. And certainly the anti-corruption drive um, they view as anti-entrepreneurial, <laughs> which uh, I suppose is right. So what they see is a, a rising um, authoritarianism, uh, a growing role um, of the state, which basically uh, brings me back to the BBC um, headline of uh, Deng uh, going back uh, to um, socialism, as I've already argued um, against that. Okay, so then we come uh, to China running out of economic steam, and this is why I'm a bit cautious. Why? Because um, what we've seen is, yes, uh, China seemingly more or less go unaffected uh, by the financial crisis, by the financial meltdown or near meltdown uh, of uh, 2008. Uh, but uh, we've also seen um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that began in China. And even though China handled that better than the United States, better uh, than Western Europe, given that China is now dependent um, on the world market, and the world market um, basically still means uh, the advanced capitalist uh, countries, um, you know, what happens in the United States uh, with an economic downturn and then a pandemic downturn clearly is going to affect uh, China. Uh, and therefore, what we have is the downgrading officially of Chinese growth uh, forecasts and actual uh, performance down from the 14 uh, percent that I mentioned in the 2010s, uh, for example, at the beginning of that uh, period, uh, down to um, 6 percent. And some estimates are that in reality uh, it's down to uh, 2 percent. And interestingly, if you read uh, Michael Roberts, um, he actually predicts uh, that, um, that China probably uh, faces a, at least a period of um, stagnation or even possible um, economic uh, downturn. And that's in spite um, of the uh, power of the state. So no doubt they can ride out um, the sort of financial crisis, um, you know, when it comes to real estate, nonetheless, um, you know, the, the idea that China continues just to grow, um, I, I think is um, at least open to question. And I certainly uh, would um, question uh, that proposition. Um, either it's going to um, slow down um, in the 2020s, um, or it will do that in the 2030s. The expectation is that it will be the 2020s. And hence, these uh, foreign policy guys then say, once that realization dawns um, on the Chinese leadership, um, then they are basically uh, in the position, we better do something about things now, because uh, as I've already outlined, uh, this uh, uh, stagnation uh, that China is in or is about to enter in goes hand in hand with the United States uh, ratcheting up uh, war threats uh, against China and attempting to strategically encircle uh, China. So um, 
Indian troops massing um, on the Chinese border, um, Australia being incorporated as a, a giant unsinkable um, aircraft carrier uh, that is armed with uh, nuclear powered missile uh, submarines, um, turning uh, Taiwan um, into some sort of front line uh, that's guarded uh, by not only an American uh, fleet, uh, but also um, America's allies uh, from Europe with um, uh, Britain's, um, can only be one name, can't it? Uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, II um, um, aircraft uh, uh, carrier. But it also should be mentioned um, that uh, in terms of the region, there's also tensions between China and Vietnam, China in the Philippines, China and um, Indonesia. Although when, if you say it, the South China Sea seems, well, that must be the sea, uh, you know, just off the coast of South China. Uh, if you look at uh, Chinese uh, claims, it, it goes right down uh, the coast of uh, North Vietnam. It goes right out uh, towards um, uh, the Philippines. It, it's a huge area, uh, actually, um, of the, the Pacific. Um, okay, so um, the basic uh, proposition, um, therefore, uh, of these uh, Americans is that it will be the Chinese uh, that will go for it um, under these uh, circumstances. I actually think that that might be worthwhile uh, looking at a, it from a different angle. Um, that if you look at um, um, you know, World War I, uh, was it Germany um, or was it Britain? My argument would actually be that it's Britain. It's Britain in alliance with Russia uh, and France uh, that basically um, you know, provoke Germany, force Germany um, into a war uh, that its generals know that unless they have extraordinarily, extraordinary luck, and that involves um, basically uh, a lightning strike uh, against France, knocking it out of the war through a blitzkrieg, and then um, a similar um, operation uh, to the east against Russia, uh, there was no way uh, that it would overcome uh, the British Empire. And of course, it failed uh, in 1914. And so the argument um, here, and this is where, again, uh, I would um, be very cautious about, is that uh, China will kick off uh, over Taiwan, which, of course, um, historically has been recognized by all powers as an integral part of China. And indeed, until the, the Mao-Nixon agreement, it represented China um, at the uh, UN, uh, that war would kick off over uh, Taiwan. Um, and what we're, the assumption here is that, that that will be defeated and we'll have a limited war uh, which China loses. Well, under those circumstances, uh, do we really expect um, the war to be confined uh, to Taiwan? Would it really not um, escalate to nuclear warfare? I mean, it is, it is reminiscent of British people thinking that the war would be over by Christmas 1914 
uh, in the same way uh, that the German uh, generals prayed uh, that the war would be over uh, by 1914, by Christmas 1914. As we know, uh, the war became a total war um, in which something like 20 uh, million died. Well, now we have um, the United States armed with, I don't know how many thousand nuclear warheads as, as a throwaway, 5,000 nuclear warheads, uh, China, something like 600 uh, nuclear warheads, and a military inferior power that it's at least sending out warning signals uh, that it would at least consider uh, a first strike um, um, against, um, you know, one presumes uh, the United States or a United States ally um, under circumstances of where it's being smashed up uh, by the United States um, and its um, allies. And I'll basically finish with this one. And again, it's not a, not a happy uh, thought uh, Sunday. I'm sorry about that. But if we take the question of uh, climate change, it's clear that um, in Glasgow, uh, there's an agenda uh, to make China uh, the main question. And it's true that China is now the biggest emitter of uh, CO2 in defense. China says, well, we've only just started uh, to industrialize and we have roughly speaking, three times the population um, of uh, the United States. Nonetheless, um, you can sit, clearly see an agenda there um, of, um, you know, anti-Chinese uh, propaganda. We saw that uh, with, to me, the absolute bogus rubbish uh, about China not engaging in repression in Xinjiang, uh, but in genocide. Uh, against the Uyghurs, which is just absurd. And, and you get people on the left repeating that uh, line uh, as if it's verity. It, it, to me, it reminds me of uh, stories of um, German troops raping and uh, raping Belgium nuns and uh, putting Belgium children on the points of their um, um, bayonets. I'm sure it happened, but it, this is propaganda. So what I'm arguing um, is that this, uh, this anti-Chinese thing um, should be seen as uh, part of a wider strategic conflict between the United States and its allies, the US hegemon uh, and China. Um, and, and basically uh, that, um, you know, that we should be uh, as aware of the danger of uh, nuclear war as we are of uh, climate uh, change. And while uh, we have sympathy and uh, admiration uh, for people in um, Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain, simply saying uh, that the government must act or governments uh, must act very easily, and this is the danger, feeds into precisely the sort of narrative uh, that the United States uh, wants to roll out uh, in terms of its campaign um, against uh, uh, China. So yes, uh, something must be done uh, in terms of uh, uh, climate change, 
Uh, but we don't want a situation uh, of where what we've been calling climate socialism uh, is combined with uh, what used to be called war uh, uh, socialism, uh, i.e. by the German high command in 1916. Anyway, with those happy thoughts, um, I conclude. Okay, Jack, thank you.